la zona blanca es... Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. My transcripts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to True Crime Uncensored, America's premier true crime podcast and radio broadcast in internet extravaganza. I am the legendary Burl Bearer, Matt Checker, Mark Boyer, producer Matt Allen, having a cosmic meltdown. You know you're known by the company you keep, which either means that Catherine Ramsland is greatly improving my reputation or I'm gradually destroying hers. We haven't decided which it is. Catherine Ramsland, welcome back to the program. Hi, again. Again. You were one of our first guests about 13 years ago. Wow. Haven't aged a bit. She still regrets it. <laughs> she still regrets it. <laughs> Uh, you may be right about that. She does study abnormal psychology and weird people. And I talk about a perfect subject. Girl. Yeah, so that's why she keeps coming back. She's doing more research. <laughs> Very possible. In case you're not familiar with Catherine Ramblin, not only is she a big fan of horses, but she's a professor of forensic psychology at the Sales University in Pennsylvania, which is a state on the eastern side of our country. Uh, she also teaches criminal justice, and there's very few fair and just criminals, and I'm glad she's discovered them and teaches about them. And she serves as an assistant provost, whatever that is. What is, what's a provost? I remember, what's his name? Uh, Timmy the provost? provost? runs the academic program. Well, you run an academic program. Yeah, I'm at a university. The provost runs the whole academic side of things, and I'm the assistant. Well, that, so you're good at getting coffee and, you know. Not that assistant. I'm not. <laughs> oh, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. You have a lot of important responsibilities, such as helping these people who are fascinated with forensics and criminal psychology find a career, a career path. I bet these bright-eyed, eager students coming to the university there are just so eager to figure out what the hell to do with their lives besides getting high on the weekends and watching CSI shows that you're able to give them a, a true sense of reality and point them in a good direction, I hope. I mean, they're really, really eager students, I assume. Well, yeah, they, most of them want to be profilers, so... <laughs> <laughs> can they draw? They're probably not going to be, yeah. but hopefully I can redirect them to something else. Well, you certainly covered a lot of territory in your career. You got about 60 books, a thousand articles, and probably more than one typewriter in your life. And I've had the great pleasure. <laughs> I've never learned to type, frankly. You never learned never, to type? Never took typing classes, never did that. I, I what, do you dictate? My, what? Do you verbally dictate your writings? Is that how you do it? Or do no, you use I, I type. I type it, but I don't know how to actually do the official type of typing, and I never use typewriter. Wow, these youngsters today just don't know what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> you whippersnappers! <laughs> I started, and then computers came out, and I said, "That's it. I'm going to go with computer." Oh boy, I'll tell you. It used to be that if you were kind of a little bit what they call gifted or advanced. You got special treatment in school. 
And my friend Alan Goldblatt, the one thing that was available to gifted students was you could learn to type. That was it. That was it. So we learned to type. And I learned to type because my mother was a journalist prior to being married, which meant, of course, her career was over. And so in the 1930s, when you got married, she just sat down and burned all of her clippings because she knew it was over. Uh, She could type. And so uh, when I was going to junior high, I went to secretarial school so I could type like my mom. I did also, but it wasn't for typing. It wasn't? No, it was for the secretaries. Oh, that um bump. Okay. <laughs> you wanted to well, try. that's why I decided not to, be a ty- to learn typing, as I wasn't going to be somebody's secretary. Good. I figured if Thank I didn't you. know how, nobody could do that. Very smart. See, that's why you're a <laughs> professor. That's why you're so brilliant. <laughs> Knew there was something about her I liked. Oh, there had to be something. Besides the fact that she interviewed me for Psychology Today. You must do get into, like... Uh, Weird stuff with physics. I know you, you're fascinated with, you know, what some people would call uh, psychic stuff or ESP or, you know, extrasensory perception and stuff like that because we've talked about some of those things in psychology today. Because I'm, I'm always kind of fascinated with that time is all happening at once. <laughs> That's a, not the right way to say it. Because the one case that uh, we talked about was the Heidi Peterson kidnap case where the detectives contacted me and said, where will we find Heidi Peterson's body? And that's what I was working as, whatever you call a mentalist or a distance reader or whatever. And I immediately just said, okay, if you get on the I-5 freeway, there's a Boylston Roanoke exit, and there's a clump of bushes. That is where you find the body. And then that's when they immediately arrested you. Yes. No, no. (laughs) That's when they immediately went to that clump of bushes, and she wasn't there, duh. One year later to the day, they call me up and go, well, you're right. You were just one year off. The question was, where will we find her? Not where is she now? That's where they found her. A year year later. So, you know, you got to be specific, I guess. You know, but the thing is, if you're going to do what I was doing then, you have to just say it, not weigh it. You can't think. You have to not think. Right. You just have to say it. And sometimes you're, it's metaphoric, and I never metaphor I didn't like, and other times it's literally accurate. So mm. I always say, don't take my word for it, but I say you'll find her in the <clears throat> bushes. And then here's another interesting conundrum. The detective said to me, could you tell us who did it? And I said, well, I can't tell you the names, but I could describe the person. But in describing them, they both looked at each other and nodded their heads and said, yeah, but we don't have any evidence. But how do I know that I wasn't picking up what they already were picturing in their mind? I don't. Right. So there you go. Mm. But you want, <clears throat> you spend a, uh, written a lot about the occult and things around that, ghost hunters, vampires. Umpires. Right. What, fa- yeah. what, what fascinates you with the, the genre? Uh, I guess just going back to childhood, reading ghost stories and I don't know, I like dark things, so the whole idea, the serial killer stuff didn't really start till later, but everything in, that I write about mostly has themes of dark, darkness, dark psychology, but I don't solve my own mystery, so <laughs> that would take all the energy out of my writing, well, you, so I don't know why. 
It says it's kind of to, to lighten up a bit or, or something after writing about all this really horrifying, real, you know, physicality of uh, these serial killers and murderous, deranged people, politicians and stuff like that. <laughs> it doesn't affect me. Well, it's kind of like being an EMT. You get kind of professional, so. professional it's detachment. Clinical. Yeah, it's, it's really emotional for me. Well, I always say, you know, people say, well, gee, we should study these people. And then I've heard others say, there's nothing to study. They're not that complex. They're incredibly shallow. They, you know, like what Brent Turvey says, they tried it, they liked it, they did it again. Like going to a Chinese restaurant. Well, but that's somebody who hasn't spent time really looking at the nuances. Well, what kind of nuances have you looked at? What do you see? What have you, what have well, you seen? Well, for example, when I was talking with Dennis Rader. Yeah. He was an outlier. He was different. He, you know, a lot of people think we have the formula for serial killers. We know what, you know, we have the, you know, what goes into how they are. And he didn't have any of that stuff. So what, what then makes him into a serial killer? And I think check down these formulas that we think we have and showing that, you know, we can't be too hasty about thinking we've got it all figured out. So I think each, each of the cases has something like that, and that's why I'm in psychology. So I think people who think, who think they're all alike just haven't taken the time to see that they're not. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, think you are but a puny mortal when within you the universe is unfolded? we got a lot of uh, variety within the uh, standard. There's a lot of variety. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty amazing. Uh, there was a film that I watched on demand. The boys say, how does this relate? Called Shake, Rattle, and Roll, starring, brace yourself, Mike Connors, later famous for Mannix, Sterling uh, Holloway, Hollowell, whatever his name is, Margaret Dumont, <laughs> and Fats Domino. Never thought I'd see Mike Connors dancing with Margaret Dumont to rock and roll, but I did. But they wanted to demonstrate the bad guys in this movie, wanted to have a court case where they would demonstrate that rock and roll was degenerate, disgusting, and perverted the youth of America. And the proof was they showed a film of black Africans dancing and synced it to a rock and roll record. And that was their proof. Well, that's, you know, an era. And that really says, and that was considered perfectly acceptable. I know. And you go, oh, <laughs> I mean, how ingrained and systemic is that in the mindset of, an American audience, they go, oh, okay. Just, uh, and when we, just when we think maybe we've overcome some of these mental quirks, I don't know, is it genetic or is, is it nature? Is it nurture or nature? Uh, could be Nietzsche. It could be. Well, <laughs> it is Nietzsche. <laughs> it's, because there's no answer to that question. There's no, you can't, have a formula that works for everybody. Some people, the, the way people process their situation is different from what somebody else does with the very same thing. So people, two people reading a True Detective magazine, for example, one might be indifferent to it, another might end up wanting to re- replicate what they see on the cover. Oh, yeah. That can remember who it was that he would read these True Detective magazines and get all sexually excited. A lot excited. of them have said that. Boy, just think if they've been reading the Cats and Jammer Kids or Popeye, they'd 
<laughs> It'll be yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Sometimes serial killers are inspired by the Bible. Yeah, well, that's easy. Well, you know, the Old Testament, uh, God was a serial killer. Yeah. And Dennis Rader was inspired by Dudley Do-Right cartoons. Uh, well, well, that's because that's, that's the Canadians. That's an interesting aside for as a young child watching Rocky and Bowinkle. I I I saw tying the woman to the railroad. Track. I saw the woman being tied to the railroad track and the guy dancing in glee, and I knew I liked this guy. Yes, yeah, exactly. He's, so yeah. different people react differently, and I think this generation has studied those differences. Hey, rookie, would you pull around in my hut? Friendly spirits, just listen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of listening to friendly spirits. You're the only woman I know who goes to a graveyard with a tape recorder. <laughs> well, how is she going to see what they have to say? Yeah, yeah your mother's knit socks in hell. <laughs> I mean, you do get these little snippets. I don't know whether they're bouncing radio signals or if it's people from beyond the mystic veil telling you you need to change your batteries. <laughs> I don't know what, what they're saying to you. I've just heard these little snippets. Has any of them ever said anything that you could really make sense out of? Yeah, one of them said, you want to know what I know. But they wouldn't tell you. Right. Well, how cooperative is that? That was in, that, in a house where there had been a murder-suicide in Savannah, and that was what the voice was very clear. You want to know what I know. But they wouldn't say well, he didn't say, I'll tell you what I know. He said, you want to know what I know. Sure. Yeah. He was making a statement, and that was all he had to say. Well, that's more than most people say in those situations. <clears throat> Not most people say. <laughs> What's in, what in uh, American Werewolf in London, where the guy the, uh, the says, Dave, you ever talk to a corpse? It's boring. So I mean, it's kind of, you know, you only get so much information. That depends. Although some people have gotten more information. It varies. But some people don't believe well, in there, any of that. There are people who, who spend their whole life talking to uh, people who are about to die, and they have learned a, a lot of stuff about what those people experience and see. And it's, it's, I think, very fascinating. Most of us don't want to be anywhere near someone who's dying, but there are people who want to find out. Oh yeah, I dated a a woman who uh, who died and then came back. It had quite a lasting effect on her because she remembered everything in astonishing right. detail. Uh, My father did too. Just because she remembered it in detail didn't necessarily mean she understood it. Right. Because interpretations vary, you know. Because then course. you then you start doing the interpretation, and right. she would tell me things that go. Fascinating, but uh, I would interpret that differently. So maybe, you know, I'd, I'd take that. But she could see things going on. I've known many people who, who died and were brought back who, like, above themselves in the operating room and that sort of thing. I was kind of right. semi-looking forward to that when they took my heart out and put it on a plate and put a Cuisinart on it or whatever the hell they did to it. But uh, I didn't have any of that. But I know plenty of people who did. Yeah, I do too. Hmm. Have either of you ever had an out-of-body experience? Yeah, she was mad as hell at me. <laughs> uh, not that <laughs> oh. kind of. 
Haven't you ever heard the expression, got cold feet and pulled out? Oh, my God. Catherine, can you help me, please? No, I can't. <laughs> I'll wait until I'm, I'm stuck with this schmuck. <laughs> don't, don't say that yes, literally. I know what an OBE is. That's what they usually refer to, an OBE. I know people who've experienced it. In fact, I just finished reading a book where the military has done a lot of experiments with that notion yeah. with OBEs and remote viewing. Yeah. And they, yeah. they continue to consult with the people who are the most talented at it. So that program went for about 70 years. Yeah, that was a... Going. We did a movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Um, yeah, that's a crappy movie. Yeah, but it was an interesting program. Fred Wolfson... Uh, one of the world's it's most a far famous. more interesting program than that movie ever yeah. allowed it to be. Yes. Uh, Fred Wolfson, a uh, good friend, former Hollywood private eye, security expert. He was in that program. He was one of the distance readers. And, of course, I was taught distance reading by Alex Merklinger back in the 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting, the things you can do and the things you can't do. Places you can get in and the places you can't get in. Uh, exactly. Uh, and I don't know whether that's... A, goes on the basis of, uh, of individuals or the places. I haven't figured that out yet. Because you do the same thing with time travel. You can send people for remote viewing back time-wise because it's not really linear, you know, as we were discussing before. Mm. And sometimes if it's a particular type of event of religious significance, sometimes you go, I can't get in. It's like this is, mm. but they don't know it's a religious significant event because it's nothing to do with their faith. And they'll go, yipes, is this it's like there's this bright wall I just can't get in, you know. And you go, okay, never mind. So uh, I hadn't heard of that one. But yeah. I, I do think the military experiments were interesting. They had some great results. What I, what I found in the uh, experiments that I participated in, if you were doing something to help somebody with a good motive, things worked really well. But if you were being selfish... <laughs> I'm sorry, Jewish. I can't be. No shellfish. No shellfish. Yes, please don't think I'm selfish if I won't eat the shellfish. It's hard keeping kosher on the range. Uh, <sighs> if you were, had impure motives, selfish motives, it tend to block the flow. But if it was to help somebody, altruistically, things worked much better. So. I'm not sure that's true. I think that's an interpretation. I, I certainly have seen it. People twist it to their own ends. Yeah, well, I think it's good to teach people that so they don't use it for evil purposes. Well, I guess true, but that doesn't mean they can't use it that way because I think they have. Yeah, I bet they have. Yeah, that is, that's not too pleasant a thought, though. Well, there are people who are highly manipulative, as I'm sure you've studied them. Uh, yeah, but they, they have their own reasons, and they think they're perfectly justified. Yep. And you see a lot of people using what we call righteous cause for what they do, and they think they're justified in things like mass murder and manipulation and conning and whatever because they're serving some other purpose. Yeah, a higher calling. Like a higher the, calling. Yeah, the emperor of Byzantium who had a program you of... See it, you see it in politics today. Yeah. All kinds of people are doing things that hurt others, and they're doing it in the name of some political vision. Yeah, well, that's how I started to say the emperor of uh, Byzantium had a program of forced conversion of the Jews, convert or die, so there'd be no Jews left within 100 years. He was so proud of himself. Uh, right. But he wound up changing his mind later. 
Yeah. Uh, but at the time, uh, he just thought he was doing a wonderful service for the church by uh, forcing the Jews to convert. Yep, you'll find that with a lot of religions. Yeah, even if the religion teaches there's no compulsion in religion, people will find a way to... I missed that part. Mm-hmm. I, I missed that statement. That's like the one about, I've come to preach good news to the poor. You've heard that one probably if you've ever been around Christians or ever read the New Testament. That was the mission, part of Jesus' mission. I've come to preach good news to the poor. If I'm poor, what's good news? It's not you'll be better I, off I dead. Know, but I, I've never seen anything that Jesus said that exactly. Yeah, good news, <laughs> good news to the poor. And uh, what would be good news to the poor? Um, here's some cash. Yeah, here's some cash. Here's some food. Here's some health care. <laughs> here's uh, here's some respect. Here's no discrimination or oppression for your economic condition. Well, how about a here's a job? Yeah, that would be good too. But no, have you ever had an opportunity to visit and talk to the subjects of your books? Well, Dennis Rader. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but to me. Did you? Many of my books are immersion into a world, and I visit a lot of the places and people that I write about. Um, did you learn anything new during these interactions? Not about the 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 subject material, like you know, I was which, here and which, I killed this person. What type of book are we talking about? Because I've, I've done a lot of different ones. Well, you've done academic material, and you've done. Uh, yeah, but I immersed in the vampire subculture, the ghost hunters, right? People in the funeral business. I mean, which which people are we talking about? I uh, it's just a general a general question. You you're there. You're talking to the person. You uh, get some answers back, and you go, "Well, I never knew that about psych about this kind of psychology." All the time. That's why I do it. I like to learn while I'm doing these things. I almost never take on a project where I already know. There's nothing more boring than writing about something you already know. That's interesting because I thought the the main ethic or ethos of writing was write what you know. That's that is a, one person's idea, and many people go with that, but I don't. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> that is not how I operate, and I think it's very boring to write what I know. That's the Wizard of Oz idea. Stay home in your own backyard. So in that way, you miss all the color of the wizard's world. You understand that metaphor? Yes. As we said, he never metaphor didn't like. Yeah, I, I really don't. I don't like staying in my own safe space and just writing that. I like to explore and learn and meet people who are doing things I've never heard of before. Oh, yeah, so otherwise, otherwise, what fun I is learned. it? What? <laughs> otherwise, what fun is it? It's got to... Exactly. <laughs> that's what the fun is. That's what the fun is, precisely. You, know, you guys are, you're probably aware of this, that the average male in America, if there's such a thing, will spend more time picking out a tie than he will picking out a career. Um, <laughs> there's um, there's a plausible pl- plausible plausible uh, explanation that a tie is much less complicated and much less scary 
Been contemplating a career. Been contemplating a career. You spent a hell of a lot more time wearing your career, and I I wanted to pick one that was fun for me. Well, you you're you're seriously ill. <laughs> yes, that's true. We know that, and I'm brain damaged, and I know that. But I've adjusted to it. You know, you have to be aware of what uh, what you're dealing with. Well, I've mentioned this on the show many times. My uh, uh, philosophy of life is that there are sheep and there are wolves. And the sheep just, you know, amble along and wait to get munched, and the wolves running around, uh, running everything and munching whatever they want. And if you talk about most people, they're going to take the path of least resistance to success, whatever that may be, as opposed mm -hmm. to the wolf that's going to go and, and attempt many things and find something that truly enlightens and, enjoy, and they enjoy. Oh, yeah. The thing is, there's also, as Orson Welles talked about, the ignorance of youth. You don't realize how difficult things are supposed to be, so you don't know they are, and so you go do them. <laughs> you don't know you're not supposed to be able to do it, so you do it. And I really think that's true. They say the older you get, sometimes the more fearful you become of doing things. Not me. Maybe so. It depends on how, what your experience has been. If your experience has been a constant sense of learning and, you know, exploring, then you'd still be doing that when you're older. Yeah. And some people don't like learning. And they think learning is a negative thing. Yeah. I don't know. There's a I avoid them. <laughs> well said. <clears throat> Hi there. We avoid people who don't like to learn. <clears throat> What's that? There's that meme where the guy's holding the sign that's misspelled that says, God hates book learners, and <laughs> learners is misspelled. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had, a, I had a, an acquaintance, let me say, who asked me, she's a writer, she asked me how she could do the kinds of explore, explorations I do and, and write the kinds of books I do without ever having to leave her house. And I, I thought, why, why would you want to only stay in your house? So I just told her, no, you can't do it. Was and she agoraphobic or she just it. like her carpet? What was the... <laughs> she was just scared of going out in the world, but she wanted to be able to write the kinds of things that I write. But she was too timid. And I, you know, so <laughs> the answer is no, you can't. You can't. No. You can't sit in your house and do these things. There's like that kid I knew was delusion, yeah, and he was he had a professional working with him as he was convinced he was going to be an NBA basketball player. He had no idea how to play basketball, and he never played basketball in his entire life. But he was sure he was going to be an NBA basketball player. So I asked the, uh, the psychologist working with him, I said, have you broached the subject that perhaps he may want to learn how to play the game? He said, no, it's too soon for that. <laughs> that would be too much too soon. We got to get to that point, but uh, it's those those leaps. The, the reinforcement of delusions fascinates me. Where you have two people, both of whom are delusional, and it's like some unspoken agreement that they support each other's delusions. Have you experienced yeah. that? Well, seen that in action? Yeah, that's a, a folly of you. What's that again? It's amazing. It's amazing that it can even happen. Yeah, I've, I've witnessed it on the streets of Seattle in the University District. There was a woman whose delusion was that she was married to Paul McCartney. And there was a fellow, I don't know what his delusion was, but 
they would have conversations that were totally delusion-based. Oh, hi, how are things with Paul today? (laughs) And then she'd ask him about his delusion, and they'd talk about that. They'd have these wonderful, long, extended, pleasant conversations that had no basis in reality. They were happy. Maybe they're raising non-existent children now. Well, I've contended for years that you're imaginary. Yeah, he always called me the imaginary Burl Bear. There was a, a kid who was very disappointed to find out I wasn't a cartoon despite, despite being so animated. <clears throat> that show business. Trip, 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 trip. Uh, the, well, yeah, trip, trip, trip. The, the book you had uh, out uh, fairly recently on uh, how to catch a killer or how to catch killers, uh, I always kind of felt that was a little misnamed. It's kind of be more like how they caught these killers. Because it doesn't seem well, to be... It wasn't, it wasn't my title. It was their title. Yeah, so. they, they do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because... I, it, I told them it wasn't, it wasn't a good... They should at least say serial killers since every case in the book is about serial killers and that's what would catch the audience. But they wanted this particular title. Yeah. Because it was... There's so many different ways. You know, 50 ways to uh, catch your killers. There's the ones where they walk in and confess. <clears throat> I find those unusual. Well, and, and they are unusual, but they're interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a book by Caitlin Rother, uh, Body right. Parts or something. But right. The guy walks into the police station and says, Hi, I want to confess I'm a serial killer. And they don't believe him. So he pulls some lady's yeah. severed breast out of his pocket and puts it on the table. Right. Well, his brother had actually brought him in to do that. Yeah. Well, that was nice of him. <laughs> yeah. There's another guy who killed his wife and children, and then went to the police station with parts of their body. Oh. And then swallowed, and took, plucked his own eye out and swallowed it. That's like uh, the guy in Texas. What was his name? I used to know him. Andre Thomas, I think is his name, who uh, uh, plucked his eye, eyeball out right. and ate it the in the courtroom. Guy. Yeah, it's the same guy. Andre, yeah. When he found him guilty, he took the other eye out and ate that one, too. Exactly. Right. And now they're trying to figure out what to do with him. Yeah. Well, now... You can't punish me. I'm handicapped. I'm blind. I can't see what... Yeah, he would be a sight for sore eyes. Oh, that um bum The other... The the way people think amazes me, there was the guy who murdered his wife and kids and put him in a storage locker up in Seattle, I think. And then he moves to Idaho where he gets a new girlfriend, a uh, new wife or whatever, and he has her paying bills. He said, make sure you always pay the storage bill up there in Federal Way. And then one day she decides, why has he always got me paying a stupid storage bill? So she stops paying it. Well, so they auction off the locker. Someone <laughs> pays for it. They open it up. and Oh, boy, there's a dead wife and the dead three kids. Oh. So he, of course, they find him and they arrest him for triple homicide or quadruple homicide, whatever it is. But they asked the girl... There's a lot of dead bodies in storage lockers. Not in mine, thank you. Unless they won't put it there. But they asked the woman who was writing the checks, they said, if you'd known what was in that storage locker, what would you have done? She said, I would have kept writing the checks. I said, well, why? Oh, my God. He said, why? I said, well... When he killed his kids and killed his wife, he was still drinking in those days. But he doesn't drink anymore, so I know he wouldn't do that to me. 
I mean, this is talk about justification and rationalization. There was nothing rational about thatization. It just amazed well, me. Sometimes it's about self defense. Like if she didn't have a job and he was supporting her, yeah, lives will cover. Boy, I mean, uh, boy, I mean, just, and I feel so sorry for the families of these people because the families may be okay or semi okay, like Manling Williams' family. She murdered her kids and chopped her husband up with a samurai sword, then wrote him a mm-hmm. suicide note. I mean, no one's going to believe that. All she had to do was divorce the guy and run off with her lover from the sandwich shop. But no, get out the samurai sword. You have probably encountered every kind of bizarre killer and nutcase on the planet, are there, unless they're discovering new... I hope not. Because <laughs> you want to find some new ones. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> How optimistic you are. I'm sure there's a whole new batch of deranged murderers out there just waiting well, to meet me. I don't me. want to think that I've covered all the bases. Maybe I some things I want to do. Yeah. Uh, what's the weird... Is it, do they have any classification of the strangest of the strange... The weird. Well, so, I mean, it depends on the context, but like the Andrew Tom, Thomas case you just mentioned is very strange. Yeah. Um, because he, that was biblical. The reason he plucked his eye out is because he had offended God. Um, and and his reason for killing his family was a very bizarre one. There was one guy, I can't remember what country it was, who wanted to do a service for his country by eliminating the elderly who were in these these places that were being supported by government funds. Oh. And he wrote a letter to the gov- government saying that he would he would um, be the assassin. He'd be he'd go in and, and kill all these elderly people on behalf of the country. <laughs> and they brought him in and evaluated him. I thought he was a little strange, but then they let him go. And then he took a machete and a flamethrower, oh I believe, in an axe, and began killing people in an elder care facility, one after another, thinking he was completely justified and that he would be hailed as a hero. Boy, following in the footsteps of Martin Luther, his solution to poverty was kill the poor. Well, I mean, that was the idea. Let's not spend all the money on these people. They're worthless, so let's just kill them. Well, yeah. That was kind of like one of the Aspects of anti-Semitism. The Jews are going to hell anyway, so why not just give them hell now? Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's a strange one. Yeah. But the fact that he actually wrote to the government and said, I'll do this on before you. <laughs> I got a great idea. I, I'm happy to step up and be the, the one to do it. Yeah, by getting a little commendation from the governor for taking the flamethrower and the machete to the old folks' home. Right. He convinced himself of that. Yeah, he was, he, he was certain. But it's similar to the guy in Norway um, who went onto that island and killed all the kids thinking he was doing the right thing because it would dissuade immigrants from coming into the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good thinking. So, the, so I think righteous cause mixed with certain types of ideology or religion can twist somebody's mind to such an extent that they do really um, evil things. I wonder which comes first. That way they think they're doing righteous things. Which comes first, the justification or the deed? 
And do they want to do it and they find the justification? Is there justification because it's planned out? I want to kill people. How could I justify it? I know. Uh, no, it's not. It's not doesn't say I want to kill people. It's what needs to be done to live up to this high ideal. And we what needs to be done is to kill people. Oh. So the, the ideal comes first. Their allegiance to the ideal, their devotedness to it, like... Like, you know, some people who are devoted to America first, and they think that justifies certain types of destructive acts because they're doing, they're patriots. Uh, that's one, not all people, I'm not saying that, I'm saying some people who, who get so uh, devoted to that ideal think that anything is justified in, ter- in their interpretation of what that ideal calls for. But they must have had to want to do that stuff anyway. They would have found an excuse somewhere. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. Hmm. I think there are people who do it and feel badly, but to still think that they did the right thing. Ah. Regret, remorse. Do you regret your crimes? Do you have any remorse yeah. for your crimes? Some people don't have any remorse at all. The hell no. I do it again in a heartbeat. Or I was only exactly. o- only following orders, as Adolf Eichmann said. You know, uh, <clears throat> taciturn yeah. authorization is all, is pretty much all anyone needs to do horrible taciturn things. Taciturn authorization, that's a fancy phrase. Where'd, yeah. you, where'd you get that one? Um, <clears throat> the final solution. Ah. Taciturn uh, authorization. Yeah. Good album title. Stop. Uh, no, too long. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> Greatest Hits, Volume 5, Taciturn Authorization. <laughs> well, you have to go your own way. No, <laughs> please. I mean, actually, you know, fiction writers have to come to terms with this because in order to create a, a good villain, they have to have a villain who's not just doing nasty things flagrantly, but has a justification for it. Right. They think they're doing the right thing. It's very difficult to write a quality anti-hero. Well, it gets done by writers all the time. Ah, but they generally fail at it. But to, good to, ones. Really, to really pull it off, uh, Hannibal Lecter would be a great anti-hero. Well, some people really like him because he's such a fascinating character. Well, there you go. But I, I read... Uh, uh, well, Dot D- Science of the Lambs, a sequel. And it read like oh, a... Manhunter? S- what? Manhunter? No, Manhunter is a prequel. The prequel, that's the prequel. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's just called Hannibal. The sequel is just called Hannibal. Yeah. Oh. That one reads like a synopsis of a screenplay. It, it probably was made yeah, that it, way. it did not read uh, as a book to me at all. I was at least, you know... I mean, they always say less is more, as Lee Goldberg discovered working with... Uh, uh, Janet Ivanovich, but I mean that was really less less than less is more. <laughs> it was like, is this a pitch or a book? <laughs> I wasn't sure. But uh, who am I to say? It was the, Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather. He said if mm-hmm. I would have known that this book was going to be so successful, I would have written a better book. <laughs> then it probably wouldn't have been successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> he was shocked. 
I mean, mostly he did the kind of, you know, <laughs> novelizations and stuff that a lot of us do. And then all of a sudden he writes this and bang, zoom <laughs> to the moon. And he, he wasn't expecting it. And he didn't even know an Alice. Yeah. Didn't even know an Alice. I always love that cartoon where it shows the astronauts on the moon and there's the body of Alice Cramden. <laughs> you have to be old enough to get the joke. Well, I just made the joke. You did. Uh, but poor uh, Catherine, she's not even old enough to remember typewriters. <laughs> no, she forgot. I remember them. I just didn't use them. Oh, you're pretty smart. Pretty, I like those little round, dark keys. Oh, stop. Yeah. It makes your fingers strong, though. <clears throat> Do you prefer uh, teaching over writing? No. Do you prefer writing over teaching? Definitely. Well, I bet that makes your students feel good. We'll play this on a loop for them. <laughs> Every day before class. I get to teach what I write. Oh. Okay? I teach a serial killers course and a death investigation course. Mm. So what's not, you know, that's fine. Oh, okay. I don't like writing papers and stuff. Ah. Mm. You don't like putting syllabuses together and... Well, the syllabus is fine, but Lesson writing plan. papers, I don't like writing papers. I don't like having to read poor writing, students who don't want to bother um, thinking their way through anything. It's not very fun. I think it's really rare to get an outstanding student, so most of them aren't just aren't enjoyable. And I've been teaching <laughs> for 35 years. It's enough. <laughs> Oh, boy, the tape loop up to all your students. <laughs> They'll be... <laughs> you walk into the classroom. They'll be doing their whole justification. <laughs> well, I do a lot of online teaching. Well, that's safer. That's <laughs> safer. And they they can choose to interact with me or not. Yeah. In an online forum, so... Skype. With, <laughs> you can do your Skype, you know, $100 an hour, whatever it is. It's, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> you try that. No, I mean I'm at the point. I'm at nearing the end of my teaching career, and my preference by far is writing. Oh. And I don't think that's a surprise. <laughs> Anybody? Uh, it is fun to write, and it's fun to research. I mean, I used to, research to me used to be the most fun part of building up. It's like the foreplay to writing. Uh, always loved that. Yeah, that's my favorite too. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who uh, who write about things that are real, there's true crime or research, they just get so into finding out things and cross-referencing things and finding stuff you didn't know before or finding connections between things that somehow other people overlooked. You go, oh, look, right. look at this. Oh, I never saw that before. Uh, that, to me, was always the real joy. Well, and that's, and that's actually the stuff that makes teaching fun is being able to bring that to the classroom. If I were just teaching a subject that I didn't have engagement in outside of this classroom, I don't, I think I wouldn't enjoy it at all. But I do like talking about the discoveries I've made. Like I just taught a, a class on the whole, the my experience with Dennis Rader. Um, and so I, I was able to give them demonstrations of things and we talk about what he said to me and things that you don't you wouldn't read in any kind of a book or a textbook. Well, how did you get to go along with this? You appeal to his ego? 
Yeah, but here to go. I mean, I mean, he didn't like get hold of. Did he get hold of you and volunteer? Hey, Catherine, let's do a project together. Or did you get no, hold of? No, it was uh, he was working with someone else, and she didn't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. After five years, she knew she wasn't going to be able to write a book, mm-hmm. and I, she knew who I was, and I talked to her on Facebook, and she asked me to take it over. So that's how it happened. Hmm. Like, I didn't know until last night that James Caan was not the original leading man in misery who was Warren Beatty. Yes. And Warren Beatty, he had been helped get the script as good as it was, and at the last minute, he was nervous. He didn't think he was good enough to do the movie and, and bailed. At the last minute, they got James Caan. Huh. Yeah. You know, one of uh, it's one of uh, one of the more favorite of my King books that I've read. Yeah, because he was less <clears throat> fanciful, shall I say? Less fanciful. Yeah, I'm, I kind of I kind of like the 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 straight on storytelling as right. opposed to yeah. the you know the metaphysical or metaphorical, you know, like uh, Cujo, for example. Cujo, I didn't care for myself. Well, the book or the the book. Um, I thought it was really, I liked it a lot. I liked the opening, you know, in the prologue where he said, talks about fear. And he said, fear to me is not uh, something that jumps out, that jumps at you out of a blind spot. But it's a cold, it's a, it's a, a warm summer night. The breeze is coming through the window. You're snoozing. And a, and a, clammy hand grabs your ankle. Eee. That would have been my ex-wife. <laughs> uh, that was a tragic story right there. So you, you've, um, a lot of your books are area-themed. You know, the killers, the killers uh, in this state. Um, are, you, are you planning to, to uh, put together one for every state? I, I was writing um, for Greg Olson's Notorious USA. Mm-hmm. I think you, you're referring to those books where I did a lot of different states. Yeah. And then he kind of dropped doing that before the states are finished. So <laughs> no. No. I think I wrote 16 of them, and then he, and he kind of stopped the series. So the answer is no, unless he wants to pick it up again. Is it true that there are more serial killers on the coast because it's as far as you can go, as close to the edge without falling before you fall off? Is, is, is there some sort of correlation between, like, say, Oregon, Washington, the coastal areas of California and serial killers compared to the Midwest? Compared to the Midwest, but we also have a lot on the east. East and South, too. Texas, Florida, they have a fair share, too. Florida, I can understand. I've been there. they got mosquitoes the size of small airplanes. New York, <clears throat> also. Yeah, they got airplanes there the size of small mosquitoes. <laughs> Plus, they got giant gorillas on the Empire State Building. I mean, that's enough to make anybody upset. Well, I didn't know the Empire State Building was in Miami. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> <laughs> they just keep moving that stuff around. You know how big King Kong got? How the hell did that happen? It must be nuclear radiation. 
I saw King Kong, uh, Kong versus Godzilla, or vice versa. Yeah. All of a sudden, Kong is this, is this absolutely enormous, bigger than a skyscraper, and it's that's abnormal. That's because movie makers had to keep getting bigger and better, bigger and better. You well, unfortunately, the all they do Kong. is get bigger, but they never get better. That was a good movie. They never get better. <laughs> yeah, Godzilla was the best in the old film. I like the original. <laughs> uh, interesting. Um, when the uh, when the producers here got a you know uh, optioned the film, they had of course they had to dub all the dialogue. But there wasn't an American actor. They put a hired Raymond so they Burr. hired Raymond Burr and shot some rotoscope so that he could insert him into scenes. <laughs> what it looked like he was there and interacting with the other other characters in the film. Wow, good technology for those days. Yeah, and then they brought him back for uh, Godzilla nineteen eighty or whatever it was, and um, he. My God, it's Godzilla again, and I've grown a beard. And I'm in a wheelchair. <laughs> well, that was Ironside. <laughs> Pardon me. What a coincidence. There's a guy on the wheelchair named Ironside. Didn't it ever strike you as peculiar? Uh, no, because I just enjoyed. I just enjoyed the show. They were originally going to put uh, Doctor House in a wheelchair, but they decided that kind of limited his mobility. That's true too. Think See, so. you learn fascinating things coming on this show, Catherine. Things you didn't need to know, didn't want to know. <laughs> and don't care whether you know or not. Huh. So, thank well, you very much uh, for joining us. It's that time again. <laughs> time, kids, to bid Catherine a fond farewell. And remind you to buy her books. <laughs> Enjoy. Thanks for coming. It's always a pleasure, Catherine. Bye. Bye -bye. Hey, Mr. Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Man Allen, the Demons of Decadence.